Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40, which is also found on page 8 of your bulletin. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important officer, official, in charge of all the treasure of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? for his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is God's word. It's a little chilly here uh, this morning, so uh, bear with us. We're still getting used to our heating system and things like that. We started a new series uh, about the vision of Metro Presbyterian Church. We'd like to do this from time to time, and while we were going through the book of Genesis, we are taking a hiatus for a few weeks to talk about our value of movement. What does it mean to say that we are a church that we value movement? And we believe that throughout the history of the Christian church, the gospel did not come by means of subversion, but actually, but rather, through means of conversion. And as a result, you know, transformation. And as a result, Metro Presbyterian Church has to reflect the character of transformation, that same character of transformation that existed throughout the times uh, of Jesus and onward into the church. And the book of Acts is a very particular book uh, about movement. Christianity was born into a culture in the book of Acts uh, in a, that was hostile and resistant to uh, the claims of Jesus every bit as much as uh, it is today. And so um, the book is very relevant for us, um, and yet at the same time, the gospel spread so rapidly, so powerfully. It changed the society. If you know anything about, uh, if you read books like by Rodney Stark, The Rise of Christianity, um, so much analysis has been done about how the church made it out of the first century with all the claims, the radical claims of Jesus. How did it make it out of the first century? It didn't just make it out of the first century. It radically changed the society. And uh, when Christianity was most potent, most powerful, most effective, it added numbers through conversion. Lives, lifestyles were changing. And this passage, we see the conversion of an Ethiopian, a particular person, right? And we're going to see three quick things about how conversion, what is conversion, how it happens. 
Um, conversion has to be an upward experience. It has to be an outward experience. It has to be an inward experience. Upward, outward, inward. That's, uh, those are our three points today. First, conversion uh, has to be an upward experience. It needs the spirit. Um, it's, the spirit is the upward agent that produces, that generates the heart, regenerates the heart. It transforms the heart. The first four verses of this book, of this passage, very, very specific about what the spirit is actually doing in leading Philip and the apostles. If you read these first four verses... Um, very, very specific. In fact, uh, verse, uh, verse 26, go south to the desert road. He says, go south to the road, the desert road um, to Gaza. Verse 29, run up to that chariot. Go to the chariot. Stay near the chariot. Philip, the apostle, he's running because the chariot's on his way. If you actually read this text, we're going to walk through these verses. The Ethiopian is on a chariot and he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And the chariot's on its way. He's on his way back to Ethiopia from Jerusalem. And here's Philip. Look at the types of people. Here's an Ethiopian, far away from Jerusalem, an upper class, you know, African man. Here's Philip, a middle-aged Jewish person who's now, uh, who's who's an apostle, and the Spirit tells him to go to the chariot, stay near the chariot. So basically, Philip is running up to the chariot. And they're having a, they start a conversation. He's literally running up to the chariot, and he doesn't, the chariot doesn't stop. He's literally just running and keeping up with the chariot and talking to this, this Ethiopian. He's having this conversation with him. And the Spirit tells him to stay near it. The Spirit told him to do it. Philip says, I see you're reading something. The man says, yes. And he's running alongside him. Now, by the way, in this passage, you'd never make up a story like this and sell it for fiction. You know, this, you would never make up fiction like this, especially if you look at the literary genres in those days. Uh, you know, you would never write this type of narrative and sell it off as fiction. Luke is writing news. He's writing history here. The Spirit produces. It's in all, involved in every aspect of conversion. Why? In the end of Matthew, chapter 28, we just walked through this last week, Jesus says, therefore go, make disciples of all nations. He says, all nations. Go to the ends of the earth. He says, I want my message of salvation through the grace of God to spread through all nations, all peoples. In other words, it's not just for you. It's not just for this community. Jesus commands, and yet it's the Spirit, God, constantly moving us. We hear it once, we forget. So easy to forget. In fact, how many of us would actually run and stay with a car that's moving to hail down somebody to talk to them about the gospel? You would only do it if the Spirit is moving you to do it. Hear the Spirit moving Philip, compelling Philip to catch up with the stranger, to talk to the stranger, and and, uh, and the Spirit's moving him and reminding him. Now, what actually produced this conversion? It's the Spirit. It's the Spirit that transformed his heart. And that should be a comfort to us. That it it has very little to do with your work and your effort. How many of you has, you know, when you sat and you and you came to faith in Christ, you know, did it really just on your own as if it was just your own thing? You just came to some intellectual decision to come to faith in Christ. The Spirit was moving. God is so mindful. He's so planned out. His work is so powerful. It's it has such effect. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, no one comes to, the, to, the, to, um, to me except the Father who sent me draws him. 
It's the Father that's working. God is working in each person, compelling them, using our circumstances, using our relationships to draw one another into him. And because of that, the Spirit desires for all of our social barriers to really be overcome. An Ethiopian, right, an African upper-class man connecting with a middle-aged Jewish man, cultures apart, worlds apart, and yet coming together because the Spirit has drawn them in together. And here's what the Spirit does. You know, why don't we do that? Why don't we often do that? Because the Spirit is causing Philip to run to the chariot. He's causing us to. He's compelling us and calling us to run and to, to go beyond our culture, beyond our race, beyond our language groups. You know, why don't we do that? If you oftentimes avoid other cultures, if you're oftentimes avoiding other ethnicities, other cultures, other ethnic groups and classes, you're really going against the Spirit of God. That's what it's saying here. Why do we do that? It's because we often think that our, our self-worth is so rooted in things that we have, things about ourselves, our race, our ethnicity, you know, our culture, something that we have or something that we do that we believe is better than other people, and that, has, that becomes some sort of measure of worth for us. And that's why we oftentimes avoid connecting with people beyond our cultures, beyond our races. The Spirit, here he he comes into our ego. He comes beyond, uh, beyond our ego, overcomes our ego so that we can see our brokenness. That's the first thing that happens when we come to faith in Christ. He enters into your ego, he overwhelms, overcomes your ego, and he comes into and reveals our brokenness. And, and as we, because we do that, we realize that we're on the same plane as everybody else. Not a single person here has entered in because they have any more worth or merit on their own that they've generated to get God's favor. We came because we're broken, because we're naked in front of God. John Paul Sartre writes a book, one of his seminal pieces a philosophy that he's written. He writes about a keyhole. And in this keyhole, this person looks in, this third person figure looks into this keyhole and he sees, behold, there's this woman who's undressing. And he describes this person and, and he, he, he kind of shares about the sense of power that he has as he looks into this keyhole because here this woman has no idea. And so he has a sense of power as he's looking in and recognizing her form and her figure and her beauty and all her flaws because she's naked in front of him until the sense of horror overwhelms him. Why? Because as he looks behind him, there he sees behind him another keyhole. When you come to the gospel, the gospel overwhelms our ego because we realize we're all naked, plain to see in God's eyes. Everything that we've done, everywhere that we've been. And as a result, we're all broken. And in our brokenness, God has reached in and drawn. He drew us. He drew us near to him. And because of that, the same spirit that drew us near will compel us then to use us to draw other people near. That's the spirit of God. He is the producer of conversion in his people. That's the upward. Now, next is the outward. Conversion takes place where? in the context of relationships. The Ethiopian here asks three foundational questions, fundamental questions, and all three of these questions tells us how the Spirit uses relationships to bring about conversion. First he says, how can I, how can I understand this, right? How can I get this unless someone explains it to me? 
He's reading from the scroll of Isaiah, reading chapter 53. The part that we see here is verses 7 and 8. And he says, how can I understand this unless someone explains it to me? The second, thing, the second question he is asks, he says, tell me please. Tell me please. He's appealing to another person. Who is this prophet talking about, himself or somebody else? And lastly, he comes across to some water. He says, here's water. The third question, why shouldn't I be baptized? Three questions, fundamentally revealing how the Spirit uses relationships, the context of relationships, to bring about conversion. The first question, verse 31, right? He says, how can I, you know, understand this unless someone explains it to me? Verse 27, this question is coming from an Ethiopian. Verse 27 says that he's an important official. He's in charge of the treasury in Ethiopia. He works for Candace, Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. The word eunuch here uh, in Greek is uh, very similar, almost exact to the word chamberlain. In other words, this man was the minister of finance. He, was a posi- he had a position of power. He reported directly to the queen. He was, he was literate in a very illiterate society. He was educated in a very uneducated society. And, and he's reading from the, from the book of Isaiah, Back then, you didn't have books that you just bought at a bookstore. They were written. They were handwritten on scrolls. They were expensive. Here he is reading from the scroll of Isaiah. It was expensive, which means he was a man of wealth. He had position of power. He had position of wealth. But he was confused. He was confused by what he was reading. He didn't understand it. And at that moment, as he's trying to make sense of this reading, Philip is running alongside the chariot because the spirit is the produce of conversion. Philip is running alongside this chariot. And he says... Do you need help to read this? And the Ethiopian could have said, you know, I'll get it on my own. I'm an educated man. You don't have to, I don't need you to explain this. Who are you? You don't even have a car. You don't even have a chariot of your own. You're running alongside. He could have easily said that, but he doesn't. Instead, what does he do? He admits his ignorance. He admits that he's confused. He asks Philip for help. Verse 31, he says, he lets Philip into the chariot. He lets him into the chariot. Don't just come to church and not let anyone in. You've got to plug in. Don't just come to church. And a lot, we have, a, you know, for years, as I was going through my spiritual, uh, you know, upheavals and discovery of the gospel, rediscovery of the gospel, I used to come, slip inside the church, walk, go, attend worship, and I just slip right out. And it's very easy to do that, especially when you come to a new place. Don't just come and, and not plug in, not let anyone in. Very few people, think about this, very few people come to faith on their own just by reading the Bible and meditating and reflecting. Almost none of us, probably none. We need community. We need people who can explain what we read to us. Because if you, how many times have you tried just on your own to change? You don't change. You can't change on your own. The Spirit has to come in and He uses the context of relationships you need community. That's the context. Uh, we need to be willing to admit that there are things that are beyond our pedigree, our education, uh, our family lineage, you know, um, our, our wealth or our position, that these things can't get it for us. Verse 31, he says, how can I understand this unless someone else explains it to me? Verse 34, he says, tell me please. He's begging. He's appealing. Tell me please. Who is this prophet talking about? Himself or somebody else? And Philip then explains. He says he explains about Jesus. The last question he asks is verse 36. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Here's water. 
Why shouldn't I be baptized? Why didn't he just say, I get what you're saying. I've come to God. I believe. Let's stop the chariot. Be on your way. That's not what he says, right? He says, why does he, he says, why not baptize me? Why not baptize me? In other words, what he's saying is, you've heard my story. I've heard you. You, you see me. Evaluate me. Validate me. My experience isn't enough personally. It's not just about an individual personal experience. I need you to validate it. I need you to evaluate it. You're my friend. Clearly you're trustworthy. And you need a ride. Help me. Explain this to me. Validate me. Baptize me. Baptism itself, the act of baptism, is, it's a communal act. You need someone else to come and conduct it. Um, it's because what we're saying here is that it's not, alo- it's not enough for just us to come to, a, to a, a, an understanding or a faith all on our own. We need somebody to actually interpret our experience. We need someone to come and validate our experience. And why do we need that? When you come to Jesus, when you come to faith in Jesus, it happens in the context of community. If you think that you're just a product of your choices, coming to God on your own, it's never going to change you. That's never going to change you. We are a product of the Spirit working through other people constantly in our lives. That's what changes us. We need community. We need to plug into community. Now, last point. We're already at the last point. We're we're speeding this up a little bit today. There's so much more I could say about this passage. One day we're going to come back to it, and I'll give you a great... I don't know about great. I'm going to give you a 40-minute uh, message on, on this passage a little bit more deeply. But um, conversion is inward. What causes the conversion? We said that it's upward. It's the spirit working. It's outward. The spirit works through relationships. It's inward. What causes the conversion? How does it happen? The Ethiopian was reading from a particular passage in Isaiah chapter 53. He was reading verses 7 to 8 at that moment when Philip actually caught up with him. The timing was perfect for Philip to run up and catch up to him as he was reading Isaiah chapter 53. And as Philip explained Isaiah 53, everything made sense for this man. This moment, this chariot ride, becomes a climactic experience in this person's life. Why? This man was powerful, he was wealthy, he's educated, successful, but he's a eunuch. And what that means is he paid a huge price to make it, to arrive, to get there. If you're a commoner in those days and you work your way, you're studying and you get the top grades and you're chosen to work and you work and you do really, really well and you slowly rise up the ranks and you finally get to the top of the palace, in the court, working for the queen, the only way that you could do that if you were a commoner was to become castrated. Why? Because they didn't want any chance, they didn't want to risk any chance of royal blood to be mixed with blood that wasn't royal. So the way that they did was that they wanted to make sure that you couldn't have children. This person paid a tremendous price to get there. He made sacrifices, you know, uh, to be castrated. That means you're sacrificing family. You're sacrificing children. You're paying a huge price for your success. You're sacrificing your body. Now you're going to say, man, that's really humane. I mean, that's really appalling. Really? Look at each other. We're in the city of Philadelphia here. Look at Philadelphia. It's hard to develop any meaningful relationship today. It's hard, you know, at our stage in life, it's hard to build intimacy with your wife or children in the way that you would ever really, really deeply want to. Why? Because of our work. 
From the moment that you're in high school, you're working your way to the top. You're starting that, that journey. You get to college, you're working your way to the top. Every one of us here has experienced the pain of paying a price to make it to the top. We all pay that price. And as a result, what gets sacrificed? Our relationships. And it doesn't change. You get married, you have children, you're constantly working because that's at the peak of your career. You're really trying to work to the peak of your career. And in a city as large as Philadelphia, if you've ever been you know, in Center City or any of the surrounding parts outside, this is a huge hub for lots of different types of industries. People are constantly working and overworking, overworking, overworking. This man, this Ethiopian, he is paying a price for his work. He's educated, and with his education, he's working into promotion, job changes, business, all the way up until he becomes the finance minister, sacrificing family, children, his body. He made it to the top, but he's spiritually empty. He's spiritually empty. So empty, he's willing to travel hundreds of miles to Jerusalem. Clearly, he had some knowledge of the faith here. He had some knowledge of the Bible, and he, had, I mean, he purchased scrolls, uh, uh, the scroll of Isaiah at the least, wealthy, and yet he's, he's searching, and, he's, and he's, he's, he's wanting to know, wanting to understand, and he goes all the way to Jerusalem because of the promises that are written you know, if he had been reading Isaiah 53 as a scroll, then he would have gleaned over at least Isaiah 56, which is in your call to worship. This promise for eunuchs that no longer will a eunuch be able to say, I am a dry tree because you will have an everlasting name. You will have a name that is great, he says. You will be called sons and daughters of God, he says. That's what God promises. And so he makes this journey all the way to Jerusalem. He left his job. He took a, God knows how long that took, but he took some time off of work in his busy schedule to make this journey. Weathering the elements to worship in Jerusalem, he ignored temples, religions, his own faiths, the faiths of his own people to worship the God of the Bible. And like many of us, spiritually searching, right now we're spiritually searching, tired, struggling with our work, struggling to make it, to get ahead in business. We're, you know, maybe, it's, we're, we're, maybe we're actually making money, but the dream, you know, the dream that you once had, you know, one thing that careers do, as much as you may enjoy your career, it, it weathers you. And so this dream that you had when you first started, by the time you get there when you made it, it's totally different. Disillusionment sets in, and you're overworked, and you're burdened, and you're lonely all the way up. You're paying a price, just like this man. And he finally gets to Jerusalem, finally gets to worship, only to realize eunuchs can't enter into the temple. They're not allowed in. Anybody with a physical deformity, in Deuteronomy writes, in the book of Deuteronomy, anyone with a physical uh, ailment, a physical uh, deformity is not allowed to enter in. The law forbids it. So people who were sexually mutilated could not enter into the temple. He, this man came all the way, hundreds of miles by chariot, could not enter in. Can you imagine his brokenness? He has an irreversible situation in his life. There's nothing more he can do on his own to change that. Rejection sets in. He's in spiritual turmoil. Can you imagine the uncleanness of being rejected? You know, religion is outside in. We look at, uh, you know, religion is us versus them mentality. So religious people tend to look down on people that are not like them. You know, right now, you say, well, I'm not very religious. Right now, if you're saying, what kind of church has this kind of heat? You're being religious because what you're saying is there are standards. There are standards that you have set 
for a good church to have. What kind of church? You know? um, so, you know, religion is outside in. I have to work to gain access. And this man, totally irreversible, broken in his condition, unable to change where he is. He has no sense of dignity here. He's wealthy, he's educated, and yet no shot at glory. Cast off, and now he's making his way back from his pilgrimage in his chariot. And he's now pouring through Isaiah again. What is this about? Did I misread? Did I misunderstand the promise? What is going on here? He's trying to make sense of this book. And he enters into the, chapter, the 50s chapters of Isaiah. And he gets to the promises towards eunuchs that they would have access to God. And he's confused. He gets to Isaiah 53. That's exactly the passage that he was reading. And he's torn apart because he can't enter. He has no access. And he gets to the parts, you know, in Isaiah that says, you no longer have to be a dry tree. You're not cut off. You're going to have a name better than a son. In an age, in a time when your descendants meant everything, and he had none. He wasn't going to have any. He's going to have an everlasting name, it says. How is he going to do that? And he comes across Isaiah 53. And he gets to verses 7 to 8. That's what he was reading. That this person's cut off. The person that's being written about here was cut off from the land of the living. And a eunuch is asking, you know, I became a eunuch to gain access to royalty. I had to work my way to ascend to the heights. But this man had royalty. This man is king. Why did he decide to become a eunuch? Why did he choose to become cut off from the land of the living? Who is this suffering servant who voluntarily became a spiritual eunuch who descended to the depths? I had to work to ascend to the heights. He descended to the depths. He was cut off to substitute himself for me. And as he's confused, Philip arrives and says, you have trouble with what you're reading? He says, how can I understand this? He lets Philip in and Philip explains the narrative of Jesus, the gospel. Sin is substituting ourselves for God. That's us working. That's why we're working. That's the reason why we're working so hard. The reason why we're working so hard, you know, Ernest Becker, Pulitzer Prize winning author, uh, journalist, author, uh, many ways, his seminal piece of work, The Denial of Death, mainly his point, just to paraphrase, is that human beings knowing that one day we're going to die cope with it in many different ways. One of the ways that we cope with that is uh, through either religious fanaticism meshed in our work. We work religiously. We want to be perfect in our work. It's our way of trying to convince ourselves that there's something beyond that we can gain in our death to make meaning of it, to make sense of it. That's Ernest Becker in The Denial of Death. Sin is substituting ourselves for God. We're constantly working. We're constantly working to gain glory, to gain access. It's a cosmic thing, and we're paying a price. But salvation, grace, is God, Jesus, substituting himself for us. And the price that he paid 
was to become a spiritual eunuch for our sakes. In Jesus, God came and he paid our penalty. He was cut off. That's what it means. He was cut off. He became spiritually castrated so that we can have access. The Bible here promises, in Isaiah 56, it promises, you no longer have to be a dry tree. You have access. How do you have access? Because the one who had ultimate access was cut off from the land of the living. He was cut off. Jesus on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, forgotten me? In other words, I'm cut off. I'm cut off from the living. God is life, and I've been cut off from the land of the living. I've lost access. I've lost glory. On the cross, in other words, Jesus is saying, I've become unclean. Why? So that we can become clean. I've lost access. Why? So that we can have access. I've lost glory. Why? So that we can have glory. We have to let this truth wash over us. Ethiopian says, stop this chariot. Actually, he says, wash, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized here? Stop this chariot. Let the waves of God's glory, his grace, wash over me. That's what he's saying. Let it wash over me like waves of love. That's what changes you. Have you ever worked on your own to try to change? You can't. You come right back. You have to let the gospel, God's grace, the fact that you cannot change on your own, that's what qualifies you to enter in. That's the prerequisite. That's what qualifies you. And God says, let the waves of my love wash over you. Jesus was torn away. Jesus was cut off. Jesus lost dignity. Why? To restore our dignity, to give us access. You don't get hammered into change. God's grace melts you into change. That's conversion. That's conversion. Baptism is literally letting the waves of God's grace wash over you. And you know what an immediate sign of change is? Look at at what's going on here. Philip, middle-aged, lawful Jewish man, takes a sexually mutilated, messed up, foreigner black man and calls him brother. Calls him brother. He takes him to water and he washes him clean. As we come to the table for communion today, as we hear from a brother today in our first baptism actually at Metro Presbyterian Church, as we approach the table, let's reflect on our story. Our story. Have the waves of God's love washed over you? Has it shaped you? It doesn't, doesn't, if you just come to Jesus as a teacher, you know, you know you're not going to change. If you just come to him as a role model or a religious figure, you're not going to change. You have to come to him as your substitute. You have to turn to Christ as your substitute. Let that be our name when we fail, when you're working and you're failing and you're working hard, you're paying your price. Let the name that is Christ, let him be your identity. Because that will calm you. That will give you peace. You know, right now, every one of us preoccupied in our work, preoccupied with many other things going on in our lives. We have to take the gospel and plant that into each of those areas. And what does it do? What will that do? One thing it will do is it will restore where there's loneliness, where there's lack of access, where you're working because you realize it is a cosmic thing. It's a spiritual thing. I'm working, I'm working. I need a reputation. I need a good reputation. I need an identity. It's because it's a cosmic thing. We actually want access. We're trying to get access into the temple on our own. Jesus substitutes himself in our place. He had to do it because he's holy. 
Only he could do it. But he was glad to do it for you. That's why we could melt it into his love. Will you reflect on that as we come to the table?